Lawyers always need to be on top of their game, or at least appear to be. It can feel overwhelming to recognize or admit when we aren't, and even harder to reach out and get help. Welcome to Sidebar, brought to you by North Carolina's Lawyer Assistance Program, where lawyers help lawyers by sharing their experience, strength, and hope as they delve into their personal journeys of recovery. Hey everybody, this is Robin Moradies, the director of the North Carolina Lawyer Assistance Program. Today I'm talking with Annette, a family lawyer who's also a great LAP volunteer. Annette, thanks for joining us. I'm glad to be here. I think we've had more requests to reprint your article than any article that we've ever published. There's something that is really resonant that people can relate to, and you start with a shocking admission in your story. So why don't you take us back to 2014 and tell us what was it that got your attention? In regards to 2014, I just remember, you know, being very tired and I just, it, this morning I knew that we were going to talk and I remember trying to kind of place myself back there of those thoughts of, you know, having a car accident seemed easier than going to work to deal with what work entailed. And in hindsight, looking at that, it's very sad that that was where I was, but now I think I'm not going to say I don't have moments where I think, wow, I'd prefer to go do anything today, but go to work. But I don't get to that extreme of thinking that that type of event is what I needed to, to, to take a mental health day. I mean, that's what I needed. I needed a mental health day and I wouldn't give myself permission to have it because I was afraid I'd let everybody else down if I did that. So you were having fantasies about taking your car over a banister, just seven to eight feet, not enough to really kill you, but just to, just to hospitalize you, to give you a much needed break. Well, it was to give myself an excuse to take a break. It, I was so worried about other people. I didn't have enough belief in my own self-worth to give myself that break, that I thought that other people needed me there for them, that I just couldn't give myself that permission to do that. And I like not being that person anymore. In your article, you talk about trying to get to the core of what the real problem was that was going on because you knew something was wrong, but you weren't really sure what it was. And there was a bit of a bumpy ride trying to get to the core of what was going on. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I'm in my forties. So, you know, one is the, is, is just life catching up with me. Is it hormones? Is it, is it my job? Is it sleep? Is it that I'm not doing of su- enough of something that, you know, I thought there was a fix. I mean, even to the point of that story, you know, I thought that if I just called my primary care physician and got an appointment, somehow there was a magic pill that was going to fix everything. It was just something that I wasn't trained to diagnose or, be able to fix it. But for some reason, I thought there was some simple, easy fix. And whenever I started exploring, I mean, I still have therapy every four weeks, probably, especially after last year, 2020. Um, So, you know, my therapist, she's like, you know, we could do an as needed basis. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, nope, nope, I'm going to keep going because I, I still need to talk about the things that I deal with in my job. And I value what it takes to be a family law attorney, to be any kind of attorney and what we have to deal with. 
So you talk a little bit about self-care in the beginnings, running 5Ks, eating clean, but it wasn't really helping. It wasn't going to the core issue. Then you ended up in the ER. And tell us about the exchange with the doctor. As a family law attorney, I kind of knew what was going to happen whenever I went to the emergency room. But I had a short window while my kid was out on a school trip to get this fixed. So this was the quickest way I thought to like get a diagnosis, get a pill, whatever. And I'd be off on my merry way and back to doing everything I needed to. I I just couldn't find what I needed on the internet to diagnose myself. I'm sure I looked. but So when I was there, doctor came in and of course, you know, he asked the question, are you suicidal? And I was just like, no, it wasn't suicidal. I was very much planning. Like I wasn't going to die from these things that I was planning. I was just trying to get a break, but I also knew I was really tired. And so I was like, I don't know, but if I have to hear another person tell me they're effing and I use the word problem, I don't really know what I'm going to do. And he was like, oh, so homicidal, suicidal. And then he laughed and that did help. Thank God he made me laugh because I can't believe I'm actually here in the emergency room thinking about what's wrong with me. You went to the ER, you went to your primary care doc, you tried some antidepressant medication that didn't really synthesize well with your body, and you're still bumping along here, not really getting to the core. And you have this beautiful line in there where you say, I was unaware of how much I was subverting my needs to everyone else's. Tell us about your moment of clarity. I'm telling all the things that got me there. And it was the moment I actually started listening to him. And he was like, I see the problem. You know, you don't have a support system. And there was this little part of me that was like, ha, everyone's takers in my life. I'm the one trying to fix everything. And he just validated that. But then he was like, it's because you never asked for help. And I was like, ah. Your article is quite clinically sophisticated and you may not realize it, (laughs) but you talk about what we call an inner critic voice that was constantly harassing you. How has that influenced your journey, your recovery? How have you tamed that voice? When I hear that voice, I'm able to tell that voice to shut up a lot better. You don't take it for the end-all, be-all powerful one? (laughs) No, and I was amazed at how often that voice would tell me ugly things. And I think I'd read it in a book, and it was about the things that you tell yourself you know, you wouldn't say those things or you wouldn't allow someone to say them to you. That inner voice told me everything from I'm lazy to I'm a worthless mom, I'm an awful lawyer, all the horrible things. And it's like, why was that there? And sometimes I'll hear that voice and I'm like, oh, I know where that's coming from. And sometimes it's just from I'm tired. And sometimes it's from well, it's because I can't fix everything and I'm disappointed that I can't fix things. So I just say something ugly to myself, but I can reframe it and I can figure out what's going on. I've become more mindful where that voice comes from. That voice is typically going to be my 10 to 12 year old self that didn't know enough. Right. I can be a lot more compassionate to myself and that inner child. You know, Maybe that's from all my therapy and everything, but I know how to talk to that ugly person, that ugly voice and say, oh, come on now. It's called an inner critic for a reason. We don't usually have an inner cheerleader. <laughs> all people have this internalized inner critic voice 
that tells us all the myriad ways we are not measuring up and that we're deficient. And it's these internalized childhood messages when we're just trying to learn and grow. And it doesn't mean that someone was abusive to us when we're growing up. It's just this internalized inner critic voice that we all have. And it can be quite terrorizing until we can learn to identify it and recognize it for what it is and then say, oh, thank you for sharing. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And, and once you figure that out, it's you're not giving a, a, a megaphone to that voice. And I think that's what I was doing before. Was, mm-hmm. It's like that's all I could hear. And it felt like it was the truth. But that was just nothing more than just a thought that. Now I can let go and I can smile about it and even sometimes laugh because I can tell when my anxiety is doing something and I can be like, oh, I know what that is. And then I can kind of laugh about it. And oh, my God, it makes life a whole lot easier. There's been a lot of press coverage lately about this level of toxic perfectionism that lawyers have. And that's being driven by that same inner critic voice. I mean, It seems so simple and yet so stunning of a revelation when you just said, it's just a thought. (laughs) We don't have to act on it. It doesn't have to drive our very behavior. It's just a thought. And we can say, oh, isn't that interesting? And then we have more agency of choice of whether we're going to get worked up about it, become anxious or worried, or whether we're going to rewrite another draft of whatever it is, if we think it isn't good enough, instead of just unconsciously reacting to that voice in our head all the time. I would tell you that there have been many mornings since 2014, whenever I would get ready for work and think I had to have the perfect outfit. I had to have an outfit that said I was accomplished, that I was put together, that whatever. And then, but then I'd catch myself and be like, nobody cares. We're all kind of consumed by the work we're doing. No one cares. Like, I can't honestly tell you what anybody wore probably the last year because I didn't pay any attention. And and then I'll chuckle. And then I just walk out the door. And it's so relieving to think, yeah, like not every little thought, not every little thing really matters because right, it just doesn't. Excellent. So your first homework assignment from your therapist, tell us about that. So she told me that I needed to do things for me. She told me she wanted me to do three things that were just for me. It couldn't be something that I got vicarious joy out of. I think she said, you can't make cupcakes for your kid's class and and get joy out of that because your kid's going to be joyful. She's like, you want to make cupcakes for yourself, make cupcakes for yourself. And, and I looked at her and I remember thinking, I mean, I was like probably sweaty and I'm like, I gave up everything. I used to play golf, but I couldn't going and playing golf meant that I had to disconnect for four to five hours. And oh my gosh, what if someone needed me? How are they going to get a hold of me? I don't remember having any hobbies. I could hear her saying things and I was already starting to process. This is going to be hard because I can't think of anything that I do that isn't for someone else. That's where all my joy was coming from. So when she gave me that, the obstacle or the part of the, oh, it can't be vicarious. I'm like, uh, this is going to be hard. She's like, even if that's walking out in the woods and and looking at a leaf and, and that leaf, you just enjoy it. And I was like, yeah, that's not going to (laughs) work. Honestly, I can't procrastinate. It's not my nature. And I was immediately trying to think, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? 
And I think my appointment was like on a Thursday. And I was already trying to like, I think I even went on Pinterest and other things, trying to find ideas of things that I could do. And it was getting to be a big struggle. And I, it wasn't until like that Sunday afternoon that I was like, I'm just going to move furniture around. I made Rice Krispie treats because they were easy and they were gluten-free. <laughs> and, so, and I took a bath, but I really was intent on, on the experience. Like I really had to think, well, why am I doing this? And what, where's the joy coming from? And that was kind of my first endeavors at that. And I realized I liked moving furniture because whenever I was a kid, I was raised by a single mom. There wasn't a lot of money, but I enjoyed moving furniture around because it felt like I had a new room. But it was such a struggle that I tried to intently figure out something each day because I thought, how lame. I can't even figure out something that brings me joy. I like to use physical metaphors. It's like that muscle atrophied from lack of use. And you had to start small. I guarantee you today there's probably, you could rattle off 10 things that you like to do. I try to make sure there's at least one thing that I'm doing a day because it helps also break up my day. If it's Panera for lunch or I will say 2020 was difficult because, you know, there were things that I found that brought me joy going to the movies and there were things and I couldn't do anymore. Walking around at, you know, at the mall or just, spending time by myself and we're all cooped up in the house. 2020 was a struggle to that. And I try and be a little bit more diverse now because I just mm -hmm. know that I need to be able to find joy in different places. And it always can't be tied to something like a place because who knows what the future holds. Sure. So boundaries is one of the single biggest problems that lawyers face across all practice areas, across all practice settings. It's a real tough problem for a lot of lawyers because obviously what makes us usually a great lawyer is subverting our needs to other people's needs. <laughs> so what did you do when you started to realize that boundaries was a huge issue for you? What kind of changes did you make in your practice? I don't give out my cell phone number to clients. I tell other attorneys that, you know, here's my cell phone number if you need to call me because it's something personal. You're running late for court. Somehow I can help. That's fine. But I also say if you text me on the weekend or you text me after hours about a case, I will block your number because I need to be able to have work when it's work time and I need to have my time when it's my time because I can't do either one of those very good if they start overlapping too much, which again, 2020 was a, was a lesson in trying to make sure that boundary stayed in place. And it was really hard because I think even knowing with other attorneys, I'm like, why are you working at eight o'clock at night and sending like, no, like we still have to have these kind of boundaries in regards to when's work, regardless if we're doing it from home. The other is I do tell clients that, I can't get emotionally invested in their case to the same extent they are because that serves them no use whatsoever. Part of the spiel I think all family law attorneys usually give is the you hire attorneys so that way they can be unemotionally invested in your case. Emotionally, I am attached to my work product and doing something good, but I can't be invested the same way. I can't be a friend the same thing of the, oh yeah, let, let me hate him too. Let me hate her too. 
because that doesn't, that means that I can't give good advice. And so I try to be really upfront with clients at the beginning, but I also try and talk to clients a lot about their own therapy. And so that way they can appreciate the boundaries that I'm setting is also trying to model for them because they typically, they have boundary issues too. That's half the reason that they're having domestic issues. I'm really structured on my calendar and what I need to get done for the day, but I'm also a lot kinder to myself and setting realistic expectations of what I can get done in a day. I know one that I had probably just a few months ago, a client who was very upset about how courts don't care about kids going to college in regards to child support issues and how our laws work. This client was talking about what a failure they were. Once you're mindful of those things and you're mindful of what that toxic feeling, what those negative thoughts, what they sound like, what they feel like. When I hear those things and I feel it, I, I'm all back like, okay, I, I can't go down this path. I don't want to go down this path. And so, I mean, I stopped her and I was like, this is not a legal issue. This is an issue between you and your therapist. I can only tell you what the law is and I can tell you some of the ways we can address it, but you're getting to the part of thinking that you're a failure about college and all that's between you and your therapist. So I've gotten a lot better of identifying what's a legal issue and what is not a legal issue and being adamant what I can address and what I can't. That's so healthy. How would you define compassion fatigue? Because it's been postulated that we should change the name from compassion fatigue to empathy fatigue. But it seems to me that the compassion fatigue that you speak of in your article was kind of really rolled up in literally taking on your client's problems as your own and not having those emotional boundaries. I can't even watch America's Funniest Home videos without physically hurting when I see someone get hurt. And I think about what toll that takes on me in regards to being that kind of person. The empathy is easy. The empathy is, okay, I get you. It's easier for me to put myself in your shoes. I think the hard part It's when I want to fix the problem. It's the compassion. It's the, I feel it. But now I want to carry you to the finish line. I want to do more. The way it's explained to me in one of our CLEs that Faye Sultan did, she's a a forensic psychologist and she came and she did a CLE and she talked to us about vicarious trauma. And one of the things that she talked about was how as attorneys, We do a lot of the same things that mental health care providers do, therapists do. They hear all these stories about trauma and in their situations, they listen and they, they're just like, that's rough. That's hard. I'll see you next week. You know, maybe you can read a book, you can do this, but attorneys are hearing all those stories of trauma and then be like, okay, I'm now going to have you fix a problem or do these activities regardless of whatever trauma that's going on in your life. And I think that's the part that wore me out. I'm taking people that I don't have any training in dealing with in regards to mental health situations or whether that be grief, whether that be abuse, whatever those are. When I'm talking to these people, I don't know how to deal with vicarious trauma as it is or even giving, you know, therapy, but I'm hearing all their stories. And then I'm like, Okay, so now based on all your trauma, based on all your problems, we need to go out and get you custody. So I need you to do X, Y, and Z. 
so that way we can present a good case regardless of whatever you've had in your past. We just got to kind of ignore it. I think that's where the compassion, there's the fatigue came in. It wasn't the having empathy or sympathy for people. It was the me trying to get them to do things to improve their situation and having absolutely no training to do that whatsoever. That law school didn't train us to do that. Mm -hmm. And particularly in family law, those very issues that they're describing might prevent them from performing in a way that you would want them to perform in court. Yes, and then or prepare for court. And that that and so one of my other issues was tying my self worth to case outcomes. Mm, that's a huge one. Yeah, and so my self worth couldn't go up if I couldn't get people to act a certain way that they've never been able to act before in their lives. So it was. I look back on it, I'm like, wow, that was idiotic. Like, what did I think was going to happen? But there's not a lot of training out there to identify those things and know what's going on and know about self-care when you're trying to attempt to do things, but also knowing what you can and can't do. Um, and also knowing there are resources out there to help persons. That part about me having my support system I tell people, go get a support system. I don't care where it comes from. Go get a support system. We all need one. You say it seems so ludicrous or insane to you that you used to think that way, but a majority of the bar does. <laughs> yes. I hear attorneys talking and saying things. It makes me cringe because there's some people I can talk to and there's there's some that, I mean, I can tell whenever they're talking to me, they think I'm some kind of new age weirdo with all this mumbo jumbo about mental health and stuff that, you know, you need to just suck all that stuff down and it's all just law problems and you need to deal with it. I mean, I had a conversation with an attorney and I said, in 20 to 30 years, the way I've seen my practice change, I can't imagine the level of mental health issues out there and the complexity of them. And if someone, especially if they're in family law, if they don't have more training than what has been or is being provided about identifying what is mental health issues versus what are legal issues and knowing how to figure out what you can and can't do. I think that it's going to lead to more burnout, like actual burnout. And I had that conversation with an attorney and, you know, he, he was telling me, he's like, oh, well, I can easily see what what's a legal issue and what's a, what's not a legal issue. I'm like, so in your practice, when did you figure that out? And I think then it was the point because this is an older attorney and he'd only recently figured it out. And the thing is, is I don't think newer attorneys are going to have that luxury of having the time to figure it out before it really impacts them on a, a personal level um, of doing, especially family law. I'd say family law, bankruptcy, a lot of those kind of personal areas of law that people, it's hard enough for them to talk about at all. And then just, you know, bringing that to the table and talking to attorneys, attorneys are really going to struggle if, again, there's not more, at least discussion about what's a lawyer's real job here. I think as attorneys, we all generally care, no matter what we say. And I think that's the biggest fallacy that I think the law of times that attorneys like to throw out there is the, oh, I don't care. This is, you know, this is just a job. This is, you know, I, I can put it away and go home. Lawyers tie their identity to their job and care more about it than almost every other profession. Yep. I 100% believe that. What advice would you give a younger version of yourself knowing what you know today? 
I'd probably just give my younger self a big hug. <laughs> I mean, like, I think that's all I needed. I don't know if there's any words that can be used to explain what law school's like, what practicing law's like, why I continue to keep doing it. But I think if I could go back and visit my younger self and give myself a big hug to just let my younger self know old self's still here and it's going fine and that we shut down that crappy inner critic <laughs> and we're doing okay. And I think that would probably be what I could, uh, that's what I could offer the most. Is there anything else that you'd like to add that I haven't asked you about? I swear. I mean, my, my article stated it. I didn't know what LAP had to offer. And I think that also goes back to, you know, that support system. And I mean, cause I remember like I was Googling compassion fatigue and attorneys. I was doing it on Pinterest and I couldn't really find anything specific for attorneys. And then whenever like I found Kathy Killian or she came and did a CLE here in Cabarrus County, I was like, holy crap. There was stuff out there. I just didn't find it. Oh my gosh, this is great. Yeah, we're not on Pinterest. <laughs> <laughs> well, your article has helped a lot of people. It's a link in the show notes, so I encourage people to read it. Thanks, Annette. Thanks for being here with us. I'm glad to do it as always. And um, again, thanks for the opportunity. Thank you for joining us at the Sidebar. If this is your first time, we encourage you to listen to another episode or two. Subscribe to our newsletter and peruse the resources at www.nclap.org. And if you know a lawyer who could use a hand, please share this episode with them today. Remember, at Sidebar, you are not alone. In fact, you are in quite good company.